Our Father, we come right now and we are about to stand underneath the light. And we have two requests. We pray that the light will be an investigative light. That it will search our hearts. It will search our minds. It will search the way that we think. It will search the way that we want. It will search the way that we act. It will search the way that we prioritize our lives. And it will find us out. And we also ask that it will be a rescuing light. Much like a lighthouse as we're out in the water and we don't know which way to direct the ship of our lives and we see the light and we know which direction we need to head to. So Lord, would you cause your word to be the lighthouse of truth and the lighthouse of salvation and the lighthouse of sanctification and the lighthouse of promise and the lighthouse of rescue and the lighthouse of standing on the rock of Jesus Christ. We ask that now in His name. Amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Colossians. Colossians. It's in the New Testament. It uh, goes to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We are in a series that we are calling Deeper. I'm going to read this morning chapter 1, verses 28 through chapter 2, verses 15. We've already studied verses 28 and 29 of chapter 1 where we went deeper in maturity. And we studied chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where we went deeper in community. We studied verses 6 and 7 last week, where we went deeper in the faith. And this week, we're going to go deeper in confidence. Next week, we're going to go deeper in confidence. And the next week, we're going to go deeper in confidence. It's all related here. And so I want us to get us a running start so that we can kind of see it in its full picture. And then we're going to zero in on verses 8, 9 and 10 this morning. So Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We'll just stop there and simply say that it is God's intention for every Christian to be mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. And for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged. Being knit together in love. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, with effective arguments, with with really good-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. In other words, the way that you became a Christian, live your Christian life. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. The gospel faith, the faith once delivered to the saints, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in Him who's the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you 
who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all, all, all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. May God bless the reading of His Word. On the night of November the 9th, 1938, in Germany, over 30,000 Jewish men were violently removed from their homes and families. They were taken captive by the government and hauled off to concentration camps and death camps where all of them would be brutally mistreated and many of them executed. You have to ask the question, why? Well, the reason is because they were Jews. That's it. They were Jews. And this particular night became known as the night of broken glass because millions and millions of dollars of damage was done by the German government as they broke the glass of all the Jewish-owned businesses and Jewish-owned establishments and Jewish-owned homes throughout all of Germany. Now symbolically, this was the beginning of the Holocaust. This was not the beginning, but symbolically, it was a widespread, huge event on one night. The Holocaust was the systematic, state-sponsored persecution and murder of over 6 million Jews in Europe. It's a word that means sacrifice by fire. The Nazis believed that Germans were racially superior to Jews and that Jews were inferior and therefore they were a danger to Germans. And so because they were a danger, they wanted to exterminate, eliminate every Jew from the face of the planet. Now, in the early years of the Nazi regime, the government established both concentration camps and death camps. And so what would happen is the Nazi government, through its soldiers, would go house to house and door to door and knock on the door or knock it down and go inside the homes. And if a Jew lived there, then Jews were taken and stripped out of their homes and put on a bus or put on a train and sent to a concentration camp to be a slave to hunger to death or to work and slave to death or to a, a death camp in which they would be immediately executed. This was one of the most heinous and monstrous acts in the history of humanity. But it went relatively undetected and unopposed by the larger outside world into World War II when allied forces actually discovered what was going on. And I think that we should praise God for that, that instead of killing 9 million Jews, they killed 6 million. What a travesty. But this, this is what I want you to understand today. Just as the Germans physically went to the homes of Jews and physically knocked on the door and physically went in and physically grabbed these Jewish men and women and boys and girls and physically removed them and put them in trains and in buses and physically took them captive to a concentration camp or to a death camp. Millions of Christians are spiritually taken captive every day. And, 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 and before you say to yourself, now wait a minute, Ryan, how, how can you legitimately draw a connection between that travesty and what's going on in the Christian world? And this is why I can draw that connection, is that I truly grieve over what happened in Germany to Jewish men and women and boys and girls. It grieves me. I've seen movies and documentaries on it. But I will tell you what grieves me equally, if not more, is the spiritual being taken captain of Christians or so-called believers or, or well-meaning people because they're not just getting, being taken captive for here and now. They're being taken captive forever and ever and ever. 
Hell is the price to pay to be being taken captive spiritually. And so, I want to tell you today that there are plenty of philosophies, there are plenty of religions, there are plenty of teachings that belittle the person and work of Jesus Christ. They belittle who He is. They belittle what He taught. They belittle what He did on the cross. They belittle what He did by rising from the dead. They belittle where He is today. They belittle what He's going to do when He comes and returns and reigns on, on, on earth. And so this is the big idea. For you note takers, this is the big idea. Don't be taken captive by Christ belittling philosophies. Don't be taken captive by Christ belittling philosophies. Because Christ is bigger, Christ is better, and Christ is more beautiful than anything the world has to offer. Don't be taken captive by philosophies that belittle Jesus Christ because Christ is bigger, He's better, and He's more beautiful than anything they have to offer. Now the big difference between what happened in Nazi Germany and what is happening in today's world regarding spirituality and salvation and eternal life is that one was physical and the other one is spiritual, but there's also something else that makes a a huge difference, is that the Jews were practically helpless. They had no army, they had no artillery, they had no arsenal. They had no body and no way to defend themselves. But you know what? Christians have the Word of Christ. Christians have the Spirit of Christ. Christians have the Church of Christ. And so what we have to do is rise up and be who we are and do what we do, which is look to Christ in worship, which is preach Christ in the church, which is teach Christ and learn Christ. Therefore, we're built up and we will not be swayed by the empty philosophies that are barraging, if that's a verb, barraging at us every single day. So I want to take up this command in verse 8. In verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Keep your eyes down on the text. He says, see to it. See to it. See to it. What, What he's saying is he's saying, watch out. Beware. Take heed. Make sure, take pains, this does not happen to you. This is the only command from verse 8 all the way down through verse 15. That's where we're going to be for three weeks. So we need to have our eyes on this command. See to it. Now in Luke 21, Jesus said the same thing. He gave the same exact, used the same exact word and said the same exact thing to his disciples. Listen to what he said. He said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. And Jesus says, do not go after them. This word see, this command, it carries with it the idea of personal accountability and personal awareness. I think what what Paul is trying to emphasize to every Christian, it is your responsibility to take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. It's your responsibility. It's my responsibility as well, as as a shepherd of you. But it is your responsibility. If you have children, it is your responsibility to take heed on their behalf. It is not the government's responsibility. It is not the community's responsibility. It is not the media's responsibility to take heed to your life and to your doctrine and to your Savior. It is your responsibility and it is the responsibility of Redeemer Church. And so embrace the responsibility that no one should take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now he he uses this, this phrase that no one takes you captive. To take captive is literally a compound word that means to carry off as prey. To carry off as prey. The last Christmas, most of you probably got a Christmas card from us Limbaugh's, and there were individual pictures on that of our boys. And there was a picture of Cody, and Cody was holding up a couple of eggs in his hand and all smiles, and in the background was Phantom. 
Phantom is our rooster. All right, and Phantom is big and white and very loud. And, and, and my boys love Phantom. Love Phantom. That's, it, that's right. It was Carson in the, in the back with the, with the egg. Okay, sorry. All right, all right. This, is gonna, this makes a difference because, because what happened a couple of months ago, Jamie went out early in the morning and she was going to feed the animals and Phantom wasn't around. And then Jamie discovered a pile of white feathers. And what had happened was a coyote had stalked Phantom during the night, had reached up and grabbed Phantom and took Phantom off. It wasn't too long after that they were in the, the boys and Jamie were in the pasture and they saw other remains of Phantom uh, a couple of acres away. All right. And so that, that really hurt the feelings of my boys, and we, we hated that it happened, but the principle that Paul is teaching right here is exactly this, because it, it's normally used to describe when an animal takes another animal off for prey. He stalks it, he chases it, he attacks it, and he goes off with it and destroys it. Now listen, the idea that Paul has here is that philosophies and traditions and religions, and political activists, and political leaders, and all kinds of people do the very same thing to Christians. And you need to beware and see to it that you don't get taken captive. I also want to say this. Walking away from Christ is never simply walking away from Christ on your own volition. It never is. I think it was about four or five weeks ago when we read that, that article of the, the young woman, I think it was off of BuzzFeed, who uh, titled her, her article, um, Why I Miss Being a Born-Again Christian. Y'all remember that? And according to her, she would say that I measured the facts and the so-called truths of Christianity versus the facts and the truths of the world and philosophy and logic and reason and history, and I, individually and in a balanced way, decided that the world offers what is true and Christianity offers what is a mirage. That's what she would say. But do you know what God would say? God would say, you have been taken captive by empty philosophies, by human religion, by human ideologies and reasoning. And do not think for a moment that this was you making an arbitrary volitional choice. This was the powers and the spiritual beings in the world that are taking you captive, just like a coyote takes a captive, a rooster. Yeah. Okay, so, so he says, see to it that no one takes you captive, and then he says, by what? By philosophy and empty deceit. Paul reveals the strategy that's used to take Christians spiritually captive. Philosophy. It actually is the Greek word philosophia. It's the compound word. Phileo and sophia. All right, phileo to love, sophia, wisdom. The love of human wisdom is what that is. Okay, the love of human wisdom. It is man's attempt to explain the universe and to explain human existence and human thought and human behavior. And then he combines it with empty deceit. These are not two separate things. These are essentially the same thing, empty deceit, describing what philosophy is. All right? And so this empty deceit is devoid of God's truth. It is futile. It is fruitless. It is without eternal power. And so what Paul is trying to say by, by combining the two terms, philosophy and empty deceit, he's saying it claims to be true, but it is utterly deceitful. A few months ago, I'll kind of stick with our home and little animals. Um, <laughs> we, uh, Jamie and I were laying in bed, and, and this is going to creep some of you out, but we heard, uh, we heard a noise, and then we heard another noise and another noise, and and then we realized we have a mouse. We have a mouse. It's in our bedroom. And we're trying to sleep. All right? And, uh, you know, wishful thinking made us think, well, maybe it'll go away. 
And the next night, same story, all right? And so you don't sleep very well when you've got critters running around, all right, in, in your bedroom. And so uh, we got traps. And, and one of the traps we got was a black box. And inside that black box was something that smelled like food. It looked like food. It was appealing like food. And the mouse found itself inside that black box and began to eat it. Day after day after day. Now, I apologize if there are any members of PETA here. But he, he begins to eat it and eat it and eat it until all of a sudden, there's no more mouse. Why? Why? Because it wasn't food. It was poison. And the poison killed the mouse. And so there's no more mouse in our house. All right? Now... Now, this is exactly what human philosophy and empty deceit does. It promises food. It smells good. It looks good. It appeals to our flesh. How, how could something that feels so good and smells so good and tastes so good be bad for me? It can't. Sometimes it even makes my circumstances better. And if anything that improves my circumstances, surely that's from God. No, no. It wasn't for the mouse, and it's not for me and you because it is devoid of truth, and it is devoid of power, and it is devoid of the gospel. And so that's what, exactly what Paul says. Now, he gives three descriptions of this empty philosophy. Look back down at the text. He says this empty human philosophy is grounded in human tradition. It is grounded in the elemental spirits of the world and it is not grounded in Jesus Christ. Now, human tradition is, is essentially just human ideas uh, and priorities that are passed down from, from generation to generation. Look, they're, they're not necessarily terrible things. Human traditions are not necessarily terrible things. Sometimes they're good things. Sometimes they're awesome things. Sometimes they're really enjoyable things. But they become bad things when they take priority over the Word of God or they, in fact, deny the Word of God. To try to example, I remember back when I was in my early 20s, I heard the story about uh, to, uh, a newlywed couple and uh, Sunday after church was their first Sunday after they got back from their honeymoon. And uh, the, the wife decided to cook a roast. And so she puts the roast, uh, before she puts the roast in the oven, she actually takes the roast and cuts off a large portion of the side of it. And, uh, and the husband said, why are you cutting off part of the roast? That's good meat. She said, well, that's what you're supposed to do. And he said, no, you're, you're not supposed to do that. She says, yes, it is. I know that, that my mom always did that. And he said, call your mom and ask why she does that. And so she called mom. Mom, why don't you cut the side of the roast off? My husband wants to know. And, and she said, well, actually, I don't really know, honey. Let me call your mom because that's what she did. And so she called her mom and said, Mom, why do we always cut that portion of the roast off before we put it in the oven? She said, honey, what they sold at the grocery store was always too big for my little pan. So I had to cut off a portion for it to be able to fit on the pan to go in the oven. That's a human tradition. It's a human tradition that is passed down from one generation to the next generation to the next generation that is baseless, all right? That's baseless. Now, listen, we do the same things in religion all the time. Why, why do we do that? Well, that's what my parents did. Well, why did we do that? Well, that's what my parents did. But it's baseless, and it's, it's powerless. Now, look, he says not only human tradition, but he says the elemental spirits of the world. This is a really odd term. Um, it means literally things in a column or things in a row. It, it would be like um, for us today saying A, B, C. One, two, three. Do, re, mi. Fa, so, la, ti. All right? That's, that, that's, it would be like that. All right? it, would be, it would be like what a teacher tells a first grade student. All right, and, and what Paul is essentially saying here is that it claims to be a sophisticated and intelligent way to live life and a way to think, but in reality, it is elementary. It is crude. It is childish. That's what he's saying. He's saying to abandon the powerful gospel for human philosophy is like returning to kindergarten after finishing graduate school. That, that's what he's saying. Now, I'm going to give you a fact here. The wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. 
and the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. Just listen to the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians. Just listen to this. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Now, I think that's really important for us to understand. The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, I wanted to stop for a moment and say, Christian, you need to get really comfortable with the world calling you a fool. I'm comfortable with it. I absolutely am. You need to get comfortable with it. In your workplace, in your extended family, in your neighborhood. Because as each passing day goes along, what you believe is going to stand in direct opposition to what the culture believes. And they're going to call you a fool. Now listen, he says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Praise God. And he says, so listen, they're grounded in human tradition. They're grounded in the elemental spirits of the world. And they're not grounded in Jesus Christ. Now, if you have your Bibles open, we've already read it, but look down at chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus Christ is the treasure chest of all wisdom and all knowledge, all discernment, all right thinking. It's in Him that we find everything that we need for a life of joyful obedience to God. And yet, empty philosophy and human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world seek to belittle Him at every single turn. Now Paul is now going to support his statement, his command, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. He's about to support it. But before we see him support it, I want us to think right now about the ways in which you and I can be taken captive by human philosophy and empty deceit. So let's take a break for a moment, and I want you to ask yourself the question, how is it, that the devil and the world and my flesh try to get at me to belittle Jesus Christ and to buy into another philosophy of life, another idea, another way of living. And then I'm gonna, we're going to look at some examples. So why don't you seriously ask yourself that question right now. probably going to hit some of your your temptations if i don't hit it that's fine the lord knows where your temptations lie but wayne if you go ahead and put on the screen the very first one i think that a lot of us are tempted to be legalists so we have legalism what is legalism legalism is jesus christ plus religious works equals salvation jamie and i once attended a church where where the preachers would say, okay, uh, superficial Christians come on Sunday mornings, real Christians come on Sunday nights. Committed Christians come on Wednesday nights as well, and the real Christians tithe, um, tithe the gross salary 
and fake Christians tithe the net salary. This is Christ plus religious works equals salvation. I'm trusting in my attendance on Sunday night. I'm trusting in my Wednesday night Bible study participation. I'm trusting in tithing my gross pay and not my net pay. And when I don't do some of those things, I feel condemned. Therefore, I am condemned and I need to be saved again. Legalism. Now, for some of you, it's not Sunday nights. It's not Wednesday nights. It's not your tithe. But for some of you, it's... Uh, it's uh, not, not watching something or not listening to something or participating in something. I don't know what it is for you. You need to identify that for yourself. But I believe so, so many people are born legalists that this has to be uh, an aspect of a lot, that a lot of us deal with. Why are we born legalists? Because we are all about achieving salvation for ourselves. I would even say that probably everybody in this room tried to achieve salvation on your own before you actually came to Christ. And so now that you've come to Christ, you're still trying to get there because you want to do your part. Legalism destroys the work of Christ. And so we need to identify that in our lives. Repent and run to Jesus. So look at the second one. The second one is do-goodism. I'm just going to warn you, I've made up some words here. Okay, you won't find them in the, you won't find them in the dictionary. Uh, do-goodism is Christ plus good deeds equals salvation. And you say, Ryan, what's the difference between legalism and do-goodism? Legalism is mostly inside the church doing church kind of stuff. Do-goodism is me knocking on the doors out here at Friendship Road, and I've got Jimmy who works down at Anniston Army Depot, and he's a good guy, and he does a lot of good things. And I say, well, how committed to you are Christ? He said, well, listen, I go to church every now and again, but I, I just really believe what Jesus said, that you, know, you need to do unto others uh, and uh, what you would have them do unto you. And I help people fix their flat tires, and, and uh, you know, I'll give a dollar or two when they're taking it up at Salvation Army uh, down at Walmart during the holidays. And I just think that if we just do good things to other people, the whole world's going to go around, and, and that's just the way we should be. That's do-goodism. And, and what it is, it's saying, I don't, really, I don't really meditate on Jesus all that much. I don't think about him a lot. I believe in the cross, and I believe in what all he did. You know, and I believe those gospels and stuff, but I really just believe if we'd all just do a little bit better, the world would go around. And let me tell you, he's trusting in that for his salvation. He doesn't think about salvation in the terms that maybe you do. Salvation being um, eternal life, life with God, knowledge of God, joyful worship. He thinks of salvation as living a good life right now. And that's what do-goodism is. Oh, sure, Jesus, but let's just have the good deeds. All right, next. Denominationalism, which is Christ plus my denomination equals salvation. I remember Jamie and I had close friends who who were in another denomination, some would even call it another religion, and they, they spent about five hours with us trying to convince us to come over to their denomination. Why? Why can't we, can't we worship Christ in our church and you worship Christ in your church and, and, and we enjoy Christ in joyful obedience and you do the same and then while we're not in the same church today we'll be together in heaven forever and enjoy one another and the idea was no but because you're not in our denomination you're going to hell. Because you don't believe what we believe about baptism you're going to hell and because you don't believe those things you're leading your children to hell you've got to come to our denomination. This is Christ plus my denomination equals salvation. And our little culture right here is eaten up with it, even though you might not even know it. The next one is traditionalism. Traditionalism. This is Christ plus my traditions equals salvation. A lot of times this, you, you see this uh, wrapped up in family. From one generation in the family to another generation to another generation, you, you see this and like, uh, well, we're hymns only. Well, we're KJV only. Well, well we're, no, we're no instruments. We're no instruments at all. It's, it's just like it was, you know, in the Bible times. We use no instruments. You know, forget about Psalm 150. Consider about Psalm 100. You know, it's just like it was in the Bible, you know. Um, you know, 
So it, it, it is Christ plus my traditions equals salvation. And if you're one of those Christians who, who, who plays music on, on the, the stage, and if you're one of those Christians that uses an NIV or an ESV, or if you're one of those Christians who, God help you on Judgment Day. That, that's traditionalism. Christ plus my traditions equals salvation. Novelism. Novelism. I made up that word. Christ plus whatever is new and fresh equals salvation. See this a lot on Twitter. You see it a lot on Facebook. See it a lot on Instagram. Man, we're, we're, we're going to run to whatever the newest, freshest, hippest, stylish church there is because that's where real spiritual life is found. It is the opposite of traditionalism. It's saying, okay... If, if the churches in our culture um, sing out of hymn books and use pianos and use the KJV, then we're going to run and we're going to find the most outlandish Bible. We're going to play every instrument possible. We're going to dress exactly opposite of the way other church folks do because we can and because that's where real life is found. That's getting popular. Not so much in Calhoun County, but it is popular in our religious culture today. The next one is superstitionism superstitionism, which is Christ plus religious words equals salvation. Christ plus religious words equals salvation. I had a close friend tell me that uh, he's been sick recently, and he came to church, and one of his uh, fellow church men uh, laid his hands on my friend because my friend had... Had, had, had said, well, I've been sick, uh, I've been sick a little bit. I, I appreciate you praying for me. Laid my hands, laid his hands on my friend and said, in the name of Jesus, be healed. And when I kind of heard that, it made me think, think about Ernest Ainsley, if you guys remember him. Um, but it was the idea that his words could force God to do something. Some people call that the word of power, all right? But that's Christ plus religious words. Or, or if we just say exactly the right things, it's giving an invitation after, the, after the, the sermon and bending down and holding hands with somebody and saying, repeat these words exactly as I say them right after me and you will be saved. That's not salvation. That's superstitionism. Okay? And so sometimes we believe that. Our culture is also eaten up with that kind of thing. Mysticism. Mysticism. I did not make this one up. Um, Christ plus ecstatic experience equals salvation. Christ plus ecstatic experience. I, I actually had this in my life. I was in my early 20s. I went to a camp. There was a lot of college students. And uh, we, we, what we were doing was we were counselors to... Uh, young people, I think they were ages, uh, ages like 12 through 15 or something. We spent all weekend with them, loving them, teaching them the Bible, playing with them, doing games and having services. And all of the kids left on buses and we stayed behind as college students and counselors and things like that. And we got into this room and we read scripture and we studied scripture. And then our musician, our music leader who was really powerful, he started playing music. And then as we were responding to the word of God, and we were singing, and our hands were up, and our, and our arms were on one another. I'm telling you, it was an amazing spiritual experience. It was a euphoria that I'd never experienced in my life before, and I've never experienced it since. But do you know what happened with me after that moment? I kept wanting to duplicate that experience. And I tried to find ways in order to duplicate that experience. And I became a leader and I tried to duplicate that experience as I was leading to try to get just the right components in order to do that experience. Why? Because I started to prioritize the experience with God in corporate worship rather than just walking with God in a daily life of obedience to Jesus Christ. This is what we call mysticism, Christ plus ecstatic experience, so that we're looking for one experience after another after another in order to validate our Christian life and who we are in Jesus. Successism. Successism. That's Christ plus 
professional, personal, or political success equals salvation. I put all three of those in there, professional, personal, and political, because that's what either we have going on in our own hearts or that's what we say in our culture or in media. Um, It is this idea that Jesus Christ has died on the cross. He was buried, and on the third day He rose from the dead, and He ascended into heaven And now, because he possesses all power and all authority and all riches, that he wants to bless my socks off materially and physically and and professionally and personally in every way that I can so that I can sell anything I want to sell, so that I can succeed, I can get bonuses, I can do all of these things. And this is the will of God because, listen, this is important, because that's my, my real salvation. That's my real salvation. This whole thing about the cross and forgiveness of sin and redemption and all of that, that's just the starting point. That's just something to get me into that abundant life that Jesus wants where I can get lots of money and a big house and a nice car and go on super vacations and this is the salvation I've always longed for and Jesus helps me get there. That's successism. Next is materialism. Materialism, very akin to successism. It's Christ plus material wealth equals salvation. Um, This is your basic health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that has taken so much of Calhoun County by storm. It is the message that's probably being preached right now in 20 different churches all within a a 15-mile radius of this building. And it is saying Christ came and did what he did so that you can have that nice shirt, so that you can have that awesome house, so that you can drive that best car, so that you can do all of these things that you've always dreamed to. That's why Jesus came. Just trust Him. I'm telling you, as Christ plus material wealth equals the salvation. And listen, in that regard, salvation is not forgiveness of sins and redemption. Salvation is being richer and better and, and, and more awesome looking than everybody else. That's your salvation called materialism it doesn't deny jesus it just moves right on past jesus to the ways in which you want to be saved cultural moralism cultural moralism i don't even put christ here because this is embracing today's cultural morality equals salvation embracing today's cultural morality equals salvation And I think we're going to see more and more of this as we watch the presidential race heat up over the next 18 months. Have you noticed that on the Republican side, so many Republicans are not just backing off of their stance on same-sex marriage? I mean, they are going really strong the other way. Why? Because the culture is now saying that same-sex marriage is right. And if I dare get on the other side of the predominant culture, there's no way I can win the presidency. And the presidency is my salvation. So I better embrace today's cultural morality so that I can be saved so I can have a place in the White House. Y'all follow me? Tracking with me? Worldly wisdomism. That's my favorite. Worldly wisdomism. Christ plus contemporary logic and science equals salvation. In other words, it's taking stuff that you learn at... uh, at school in the fifth grade or at university when you're a freshman and say, you know what, that logic has to be right. Textbooks are written about it. That reasoning has to be right because all of the scientific world is saying that that's accurate. So what I need to do is I need to take my Bible and I need to take these textbooks and I need to try to square these textbooks and my my philosophy professor and my history professor with what they're saying and come up with a way of salvation and a way of doing religious life so that they all match together. And that's not accurate because it's Christ plus logic and science equals salvation. I remember being a freshman in college in Western Civ 1. I remember my professor... And I believe that uh, part of his ambition in Western civilization was to destroy the faith of anybody who claimed Jesus Christ. 
And so he builds an argument and builds an argument. And then I think he knew that I was a Christian. And so, and so he, he points to me and he says, he says, Sir, do you believe that it is loving for a God, for a God to destroy people? Do you believe, and he, so he's thinking about some of the passages in the Old Testament. Do you think that it is loving for God to allow diseases to happen to people? Do you believe that it is loving for God to, to um, judge people even though they've not heard the message that you believe? And I'm just sitting here looking at him. And then he says, now in your Bible, what does it say in 1 John? God is what? Love. And he says, now listen, if God is love and those things aren't loving, then we might need to think about how authoritative our Bible is. And so what he's doing, he's redefining what love is. He's redefining who God is. And he's making me as an 18-year-old freshman begin to think, oh, wait a minute, what is this? Let me tell you what all that is. That is human philosophy and empty deceit. For, For anybody to think that they can define what love is when God himself who created the world and sustains it by his own power is the one who defines it and demonstrates it day to day. Well, I have more, but we're going to skip them. All right. So Paul wants to say that Christ is bigger than all of that stuff. Christ is bigger than all of that stuff. Look back down at your passage. I'm going to give you the first reason. This is only going to take just a few minutes. I'm going to, I'm going to give you the first reason why you don't need to buy into human philosophy and empty deceit. We find it in verses 9 and 10. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. This is what Paul is saying. Christ is bigger than all of that stuff. Christ is more awesome than all of that stuff. They are empty. He is full. They are little. He is big. In Christ, you have everything that you need for a life of joyful and powerful worship. He is the fullness of Godness. He created everything. He sustains everything. He owns everything. He rules over everything. He is fully and completely God over all. And you've been filled with all His fullness. Paul would say, what they have is empty. What he has is full. What they have is tradition. What he has is truth. What they have is elementary. What he has is profound. And what they have is deceitful. What he has delivers eternal life. Bow your heads with me. I want you to think about Jesus Christ right now. I want you to think about who He is. I want you to think about what He's done. I want you to think about what He's doing right now for you. And I want you to think about what He's going to do ultimately when He reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. Just think about Him. Think about the Savior. Because as you are bowed in your hearts and you're thinking about the Savior, this is what I want want to tell you about Him. Jesus is the foundation that never fails. He is the river that never runs dry. He is the rock that never moves. He's the light that never stops shining. He's the boat that never sinks. He's the tree that never falls to the ground. He's the fortress that's never penetrated. The house that never collapses. The husband who never leaves his bride. The father who never breaks his promises. The shepherd who never abandons his flock. The friend who never lets you down. 
The prophet who never stops speaking to you. The priest who never stops interceding for you. The king who never stops leading you. He is the Savior who never stops saving you. That's who Jesus is. And He is inside of you. I am here to tell you this morning that Christ is bigger. He is better. And He is more beautiful than any philosophy or tradition or religion that comes your way. Trust Him, worship Him, and you will find joy and peace forever and ever. Call on Him right now. Earlier, I drew a distinction between what happened to the Jews physically in the 30s and 40s in Germany and what's happening to professing Christians today, right now, spiritually. And I drew a, a, a difference. Both were led captive. Both are to being taken captive. One physically, the other one spiritually. I want to draw a final distinction. And that distinction is this. In the 30s and 40s, Nazi soldiers would bang on the doors and knock the doors down and go and aggressively seize these Jewish men and women and boys and girls. And those people, those poor people, would go kicking and screaming and crying and clawing and scratching, trying not to be taken captive. But today, today in, in our spiritual climate, we have professing Christians who turn on their television and voluntarily watch a TV preacher who preaches Christ plus good works or Christ plus materialism or Christ plus ecstatic experiences. We have people who go to bookstores and voluntarily purchase books and they read them and, and, and they're, they're buying successism, hook, line, and sinker simply because there's a Bible verse attached at the very top of every chapter, or the author might mention the Lord somewhere. But it doesn't matter what it necessarily looks like or sounds like. These would-be Christians or these professing believers, even some actual Christians, voluntarily take in these messages that either subtract from Christ or add to Christ. And I want to tell you this morning, church, that if you subtract anything from the person and work of Jesus, or you add anything to the person and work of Jesus, you don't have Jesus. You see, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 